artistic director Gabriel Stelion Shanks. Welcome to the Drama League's Hashtag Collaboration, our digital video and podcast series where some of America's most influential artists sit down together to discuss the unique cooperation and teamwork that lies inside every great piece of theater, television, or film. Hashtag Collaboration reminds us that the magic we enjoy on our stages and screens always begins with great minds coming together around an idea. To watch more, you can visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series, or simply search for the Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. And now sit back and enjoy Hashtag Collaboration. I'm Kay Taylor Upchurch, director. Uh, I usually live in New York. Um, and Lauren and I got to work together on a play last fall that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I'm Lauren Gunderson. I'm a playwright. Hello, hello. What a Hi. delightful thing to see your face. Yeah, same. I know. It's, it's been a while. It's, it's interesting to sit down and talk about collaboration in a moment where I'm missing it so much. <laughs> Being in a room with everybody. Um, but this is, this is nice. This is close. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've found that I can talk about theater for days and days and days right now, even though, of course, we can't make it in the same way, but it still feels so good to talk about it and what it is, what it was, what it is becoming and all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I miss it. I miss my colleagues, my collaborators. I miss the work for sure. I know. It's been uh, in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we worked together on The Half-Life of Marie Curie, which Audible produced, uh, both a physical production, which is at Manetta Lane, and then we recorded it at Audible Studios. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about working together on that. Yeah, um, such a cool process. And yeah. Do you want to start talking about how it came about to begin with? <clears throat> yeah, so um, Audible had this really amazing idea uh, to create a space to help playwrights. Um, their CEO, Don Katz, is a major theater fan. And I think the story goes, he asked Oscar Eustace, what can I do to help theater? And Oscar said, help playwrights. So they came up with this really cool idea to kind of build off of what's really popular and has always been in the UK, like a radio drama, radio plays. And America doesn't really have that tradition. So Audible said, well, let's make it. <laughs> so um, they've had several classes of writers that they've commissioned to create one or two person shows. And I was in the first class, very excited to be in that cohort of amazing writers. Um, and so they tasked all of us to come up with a show that would work really well in the audio experience. But also then they kind of bought a theater <laughs> and said, we've got all these plays. Um, why don't we produce some of them? Why don't we record some things live? And so they do a combination of like the project you and I worked on, um, which is a commission called The Half-Life of Marie Curie. And it's about Marie Curie and her great friend, uh, Herta Ayrton, at this really interesting moment in history and in Marie's life, um, based on a true story. And it's totally my jam of telling science lady stories <laughs> and stories of sisterhood and female friendship that become a, a universal story. Um, so it was something I was so, so excited to do. And when they 
you know, whether they were going to record it um, solely or also bring it to the stage, um, we talked about directors and yours was one of the first names that popped up and immediately I said, oh my gosh, yeah, let's get on the phone. So we got on the phone and had a really riveting conversation about, um, I mean, it's interesting because I, I talk with a lot of different directors and I, I will always remember the conversation with you because obviously you'd read it and thought a lot about it, which is always nice, but the way that you thought about it was, it was like more than the story itself. And it made me feel like what we could do together was more than just tell the story, but to tap into like a bigger story, a bigger thing mm -hmm. for mothers, for scientists, for women all over the world, for the men who love these women, for parents, for thinkers. It's, it started to feel like a bigger thing, which is the story, the theater I want to make. And I think that's why I resonated so quickly with what you brought to the table. Mm, that's interesting. I, I just, that's, I, that's what I loved about it. I felt like a lot of that was already coming off the page a bit that um, one of the things that you do so well is, is you take a real life person, um, but it's not just a, a biopic as it were, <laughs> it's not just a biography. I think I would have been less interested um, in the story of it had it been just a, this is the life of Marie Curie, but you uh, very smartly picked this very particular moment in her life that we could concentrate on so we weren't burdened with like let's tell this entire story and recreate but then also you at, at the end you sort of catapulted it you know you're beginning to think about how it could live beyond that moment um which was really exciting to me and also exciting about uh, to think about how to bring that to the stage yeah um so i'm curious about i think we talked about this way back when but i just to remind me what how what was the what was the spark um, in terms of your writing about Marie Curie in this moment? I know you write a lot about female scientists and obviously she's one of the greats, but um, what, what brought you to this? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because the only female scientist anyone really knows is her and I haven't written about her. And so it was a little bit, everyone's like going, you're gonna, you're gonna write about her, right? Like that's the only one. <laughs> um, but it felt too obvious. I don't know, I'm, I was always like, whatever everyone expects is the thing that I'm like, no. <laughs> um, but. This story was so compelling because she, the, 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 the nugget of it was twofold. One, this unknown scientist, Herta Ayrton, who is her friend, and nobody really knows that much about her, but she was an electrical engineer and a physicist and a mathematician in the UK at this time. She was a, um, you know, 10, 10 or so years older than Marie Curie, but they wrote letters all the time and had this really interesting friendship. And they had shared a lot in common because they had both had daughters, their husbands had passed away, so they were both widows, kind of in that new reality, in that new phase of life. Both scientists, thinkers, kind of change makers and glass you know, ceiling shatterers in various ways. Um, but this moment in, in Marie Curie's life felt so stageable and, dra and dramatizable because she won her second Nobel, but then this massive sex scandal hit and she the combination of those things of this high and this low of somebody being so revered across the world the most, probably most famous woman on the planet at that moment um and then to be drug i know asunder by this you know this scandal and she was just trashed in the press the french just went after her and called her all manner of not just like home wrecker and slut and all those things but foreigner because she was polish and you know all of these terrible um, <clears throat> frankly, you know, racist and misogynistic on every level. 
uh, things that they heaved at this woman, this incredible woman. And one that makes me think, wow, <clears throat> what an interesting combination of feelings that must be for her. And two, like Marie Curie, like got it going on a little bit. Like she had some secrets. She, she's not just this kind of buttoned up prim school marm version that, that all the posters would have you believe. She was complicated and sexual and you know, trying to live a full life. Um, and out of that moment of crisis, she, her friend Hertha, who's this like awesome British suffragist, <laughs> crazy lady, uh, comes to her aid and says like, girl, get up. I'm not gonna let you do this on your own. You're coming with me. I'm gonna take care of you. Come to my seaside little cat cottage in the UK, travel by, you know, and a fake name. I mean, they did like all the spy stuff to get her there without anyone knowing. And Hertha basically saved her life, but in a way that it's just so relatable. It's just like a sister, a friend saying, I got you. I'd never heard that about Marie Curie. Um, and I feel like part of what you and I had talked about, why the story becomes bigger than itself is because it really is a, an exploration and a celebration of female friendship and um, how deep and powerful that is, um, even more than romance and, and other things. Like it's, all, it's usually your girls that'll be there for you <laughs> um, or whatever your friends are. But anyway, so yeah, so that, that was the kind of nugget of the story. It's like, how can we combine this really, this moment of incredible crisis plus the buy-in of Marie Curie so we know who she is. A lot of audiences will go like, I know that. <laughs> I will come see that. Um, fine, great, whatever brings them in. And then once we have them, we can tell this really interesting story of these two very different but complementary women. And yeah, and, um, and also do a little bit of time traveling at the end, which I, I always kind of loved the simplicity with which you directed that. There's a part at the end where they kind of switch the the style of the show basically changes on you from a kind of very intimate naturalistic kind of tete-a-tete -tete between these two brilliant and feisty and passionate women and then it kind of switches to a more metaphysical moment where they are facing out and kind of describing as the world starts to go faster and faster and faster around them and this is a, right at the beginning of world war one and um and so we kind of zoom through this point in time and I was like I don't know how she's gonna do this <laughs> but you attack attacked it with such simplicity and grace and honesty it was really cool thank you um well we also had uh the embarrassment of riches of Frankie Faradani and Kate Mulgrew <laughs> playing these two women which was incredible yeah. um how did you how did you start the process with them like how did how do you start these plays? I mean, what, what is your, how does your director brain kind of click into knowing what to do? Yeah, I mean, my first place to start with a new play is always with the writer. So you and I had extensive conversations at the beginning. One of my first questions is always, what were you reading and listening to or thinking about when you wrote this play? Um, or what are you still reading and thinking about as you're writing this play? And so those conversations that I had with you at the very beginning were really helpful in terms of orienting um, myself with the material. And particularly when something is based on a real human, I just want to do as much research as possible. And the two actors that we were working with also wanted to do as much research as possible. And I always find that, that um, the, the writer's text plus a ton of research, there's always some amazing um, discoveries in that so you know like a small thing I mean for for her to Ayrton you 
told me about the, 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 there was a biography about her from like 1923 that's out of print. I could only find it in the downtown library and I had to stand there and scan it page by page um, so that we could have a copy of it. Lauren owns a copy, but I think she owns the only one in the entire world. I think so, you still uh, have it or somebody in New York has <laughs> oh, it wait, now. Because so, we shared uh, it. We had this one, it's like a random book that I had to buy from some rare bookseller in the UK because there's only two available online. <laughs> but in there, oh, like a learn a lot about her to Ayrton and her great capacity for being a hostess and the things that she did um, both with science and physics um, and then also in her personal life. And so those kinds of things informed actually like props or behavior or things that um, that Kate Mulgrew could sort of sink her teeth into to do as Herta. Um, so, and reading that and reading Lauren's dialogue, I, I had a, a thought of, you know, what, what can we do with the least amount on stage that we can go to all these different places? It starts at Marie's apartment in Paris and very quickly transitions to Herta's um, seaside cottage. And then you're also on the beach and you're underwater and you're, um, and then you go into this, co-monologue that travels through time and space. And so I didn't, I wanted to not burden the play with a ton of scene changes or, you know, a turntable or anything like that, that what was the thing we could do that would engage um, our imagination to bring us on this journey. And so that also the actors in a way could be in charge of creating their own space. And reading um, the research and the uh, and doing some historical research at the time and also with costumes with Sarah Lux beautifully designed Oof, um, gorgeous that helped inform behavior and other things that they were going to be doing so I think beginning that that beginning place of as much reading as possible um, about the women and um, which would help inform both acting moments and tone and props um, and scenic elements and costume elements and all of that where I started there. Um, I mean, for example, one thing I remember very clearly reading about Marie is that when she first had her, her first child, she would be in the lab and then suddenly go running across town to go breastfeed her child and then run back. And then she would, she would know that her child was on a walk with the nanny in a stroller in the park and she would be in the middle of some you know, experiment in her lab and she would suddenly be struck by this sort of daydream nightmare that something had happened to her child. So she would run to the park and find the nanny, find the child, make sure the child was okay, and then run back. And I just thought, oh my God, every new mother can relate to this. The sort mm -hmm. of daydream nightmares of that something horrible is happening or that how you start to learn to balance work and life and motherhood and all these things. And to think that, oh my God, the only person, male or female, to ever win two Nobel Prizes in two different categories is also... <laughs> sprinting across town to make sure a child is okay or whatever the equivalent is of that that we're all doing now is um I, it really moved me and was comforting to me and also terrifying to me and all of those things and, and I thought oh there is something in here that Lauren um already knew and is getting at in her play about the experience of any woman who is um on a course with some kind of career or that you're engaging with something outside of the home and also trying to be in the home. Um, and in this case, also being a friend to, um, you know, for the, these two women with each other. So that really struck me, this very complicated um, web of motherhood, career, um, 
and all of the, um, or I should say parenthood, I think fathers experience a lot of this as well. Um, and also just the joy of being in a room with these two brilliant women and hearing them um, talk to each other and um, be honest with each other. Uh, I love that. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. a really exciting thing to try to find, um, you know, what can we do to, to dig into that truth of that? And like how quickly you have to go in. I mean, that's what, this play is kind of deceptively hard, which I learned. I mean, I wrote it being like, this is gonna be great. It's so easy, great actors, great director. We're just gonna sail through, but it gets really intense really quickly because we meet Marie Curie at the worst moment in her life. I mean, at almost a near suicidal moment. I mean, she was never going to do that to herself, but she, it's like she wished the world would do it to her and just be like, let's just be done with this, you know? So how do we meet and start a play that is also supposed to be funny and fast and, you know, with this moment of incredible depression and, and um, this violence being done to her and kind of pivot along and, you know, Hertz is so snappy and, and sassy and quick thinking and, so we like having to balance these two characters at very different parts of their, of, of, of finding them and, and, you know, shooting them out of the canon of the play to, to get, you know, the whole thing rolling was really, it's like orchestral, it's the conducting that had to be done, yeah. <laughs> emotional conducting. That reminds me of some of our early conversations were about the rhythm of particularly the beginning of the play, that yeah. first scene between the two of them and also a little beyond that, which was about the rhythm of it because it was clear that it needed to move fast, but it was also clear that we needed to be able to experience the intimacy of this friendship mm -hmm. in order to believe that Marie was going to leave Paris and go off with her friend. Um, so it there was sort of this balance to achieve and I remember us talking through a bunch of different ideas, like does she, you know, what do you do when your friend is, is this depressed? And we know from her letters that she did contemplate suicide or at least thought about it, um, which was really shocking to me to learn that about Marie Curie. But we talked about, you know, does her friend wash her hair? Do we have a whole hair washing? Do we, so we, we sort of threw out all these ideas together of like, what can we do to have a wordless moment that brings these two closer together. And none of that ended up happening, but you did uh, find places in the script to sort of bring out some silence uh, that would allow us to all breathe together and see these two women um, galvanize their friendship without having to talk about it, mm -hmm. which I found really moving and also necessary to get us into the next phase of the play. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, remember, I don't remember what point were we working. I know we did, we talked about that before rehearsals began and we were trying different things, but I don't know if we ever really landed on it until we got into rehearsal. In the space, the yeah. I mean, yeah. My, my goal as a writer is actually to write the non-dialogue moments. And this play is in, in fact full of them, how they share later on, how they share a drunken, you know, hilarious evening together and the way that they pass a cup or a hand on the shoulder or this idea of touching a hair and how kind of feminine and intimate that is and sisterly and, and what is it to be on the sand and, you know, on the beach. And I mean, all, all of these different things, how, how the body works, because Marie, of course, was, was notoriously very ill. 
Um, so how is she dealing with her own physicality and when do we see it and not speak about it? And then when does it, is it so obvious you have to speak about it? And, you know, all of those little things to me are just the gems of theater making. And I think we found so many of them and, and we're very intentional about it and because they're so powerful, especially in a two person play where we're just watching the two of them. So every moment of interaction between them has such great um, meaning and, um, and, and valence. But yeah, I love that scene at the end, that was my favorite. Wait, say that again? The drunk scene at the end is just oh, yeah. the greatest. I loved working on that. That was the most. The scene <laughs> where, yeah, we, um, Lauren had written this fabulous moment where they get drunk on whiskey and, and working on that with Kate and Frankie in the room with Lauren, it was one of my great joys of collaborative so theater making. Because it's a forgiveness it's all, scene, right? Because we've been yeah. through the harsh part and they've had their massive argument and rah, 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 and they kind of come back and almost, again, wordlessly just kind of go like, are we going to, are we going to apologize to each other, make a big moment? And they're like, no, nope, we're going to get drunk. <laughs> and they just yeah. start drinking in the wave. You even transition from that scene into the drunk scene where they are like moving a lamp and it's like, a, like two, two drunk people trying to accomplish a very simple task. But <laughs> it became just... yeah, that came about because I really wanted the, because that scene, the whiskey scene was really, um, the to me it was one of the more intimate scenes of the play and i really yeah. wanted the whole um space to shift down to them yeah. so we wanted to um uh light it in such a way that it could be as intimate as possible which meant bringing in a practical and it was like well we don't really do transitions like that in this play for the language that we've set up so how can we <laughs> work backwards to think of a way to to get that to work for us. And then it was like, oh, well, you know, when you're drunk, you just, if you want to rearrange furniture, or even sometimes if you're not drunk, if you're just giddy with a friend and you just want to rearrange things and, do it. and you can find those impossible tasks hilarious. Yeah. Um, I actually remember moving a sister, uh, moving my bed with my sister and she was pregnant and, and it, my bed was so heavy and both of us trying to do it in a way that was keeping her, we were laughing so hard the whole time, <laughs> like getting in these ridiculous contortions, you know, to try to move the bed. And that, you know, using sort of some real life knowledge that all of us have of what happens when you're trying to do, you know, uh, an awkward task, particularly when you're loaded. And so like authentic. And so, yeah, was, and then, you know, that scene is about them. That's like the moment of most closeness and, and vulnerability and companionship. And they are, what's also really interesting in that moment, which I think you discovered was they're sharing, there's one kind of chaise like a couch thing and they are just on top of each other you know they're 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 loose and drunk and the they're like shoes are off and they're just touching each other and like hugging and kind of just flopping all over each other and sharing the booze and and it just became this slumber party you know <laughs> like a Marie Curie slumber party who knew that's what the world wanted at least I wanted it <laughs> yeah same and also <clears throat> Frankie and Kate got along so beautifully and um and their friendship over the course of rehearsal also fed into the Herta and Marie friendship and so there was this really beautiful Venn diagram happening also of like a real life friendship being born and these two women and so getting them to find things to laugh about in terms of like that moment when it tips over, nobody knows what you're even laughing about anymore and <laughs> laughing and keep laughing. And it was like, just keep going, just keep going. I think the audience is going to be with you. And the audience was because we've all been there before. And if you allow something like that in, on stage to go on longer than maybe 
it should, you know, um, it is so satisfying because that's actually what happens in life. when yeah. <laughs> You just um, can't stop laughing for whatever reason. Then something tiny happens. It just, you know, sends you over the edge again and fits of laughter. It was a really great scene to work on. Now, so we're talking so much about the physical and the visual and the, and the gestural. Um, but how did you transition to like, oh, now I'm directing an audio play as well. I mean, we took so much of their spirit and of course brilliance into that into that studio but what was that like for you to kind of yeah it was interesting i you know when we were in the booth i made myself not look at them Hmm. because i realized that so much of theater directing is you know obviously watching the actors and listening and having both things happening simultaneously and i really wanted to have the experience of what does this feel like to just listen and um and they're such beautiful actors that so much of um, what they were bringing to the to the play can be heard just in the voice. And so that was one thing that struck me was like, wow, you can get so much out of just listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also in your writing, because of the, I, I feel like the way that the exposition was sort of stitched seamlessly in so that we weren't just getting this like front-loaded biopic that might turn off a listener yeah. if you're not watching them. Do you know what I mean, it was very subtle that you were just sort of drawn into the orbit of these women. Um, and knowing that we could um, trust just the nature of their voices to bring that audio, um, bring the story through in just audio. And also that Darren West sound design was going to be sort of supporting us underneath was really amazing to know that ahead of time. Um, another thing that we should talk about, Lauren, is the structure of this play was so interesting. Um, it was one of the things that really drew me to it. And it's also a structure that I hadn't worked with before and one that I could imagine perhaps in a playwriting class, maybe a teacher saying that's not the way to structure a play. (laughs) And yet it worked so well, which was that you started off actually with two monologues. Mm -hmm. Um, Marie gave a monologue on radium. Herta Ayrton gave a monologue about a light that she worked on. Um, And then we were launched into the scene of the two of them together. And then we hit a co-monologue at the end and then we went back into sort of a future version um, where after Herta has died and they are communing across time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just am curious like, to hear from you, at what point did you know that was going to be the structure of the play? Did it just unfold in your head that way? Or what were you thinking about when you wrote it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a two-person play to get some um, intimate kind of personal relationship with each character individually um, and then to have them kind of uh, braided together. Um, But I mean, whenever you set up a structure, the question always is, when are you gonna break it (laughs) for me? (laughs) So if you have a structure and it's set the whole time and you don't do anything fun with it, that seems like a wasted opportunity to make, to to do that thing that theater can do, which is it it can break and it can be beautiful because it broke and it teach you more because of what what the breaking is. So setting up this um, monologue space where we get to know Marie, and she tells us a very secret thing about radium, but also about love. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a monologue about what she loves. Um, um, and it also is an interesting way to meet her because we expect that monologue would be in front of a class of students and they're talking about physics and here I am or accepting a prize or doing something very official. And this was a secret. 
it's, it's even written as whispered, you know, just like, I'm just going to tell you this true thing about me, which to me helps us lean forward, draw in. And then we smash to the contrast of that, which is a loud, boisterous monologue from Herta being like, here's how awesome I am, everyone. Um, and you just love her instantly. And she's just like crazy and body and big and wonderful and brilliant. And, um, and so then we know, okay, this is who Marie really is. This is who Herta really is. And now we put them together and we're already kind of going, do they fit together? Is this gonna work? Are they okay? <laughs> so I think already that kind of sets up a dramatic tension and you can only do that when you have one node and the other node to kind of compare. And then the play is really about how their friendship goes like this and this and this. <clears throat> so we kind of bring them together, save the day, they fight, they come apart. Um, quite literally, Marie leaves the house and this kind of fit of rage and Hertha, you know, uh, is betrayed as well. And then we bring them back together for that apology. And then they kind of, life does what it does, which is takes them apart and they, a war happens and life happens and death happens. And um, so we kind of naturally flow apart again. So it's that kind of this um, that feels to me, honestly, a, a, very, a, a feminine structure, because it's cyclical. We're coming together, we're, we're coming apart, we're coming together, coming apart. And that, for a play about really amazing women, felt like an interesting place to be in. And that ending moment, um, I thought many times about just ending it before the time travel moment. I call it that because we basically kind of, the play breaks. This is, this is the moment when the play breaks. And we were fine, and we had our, you know, our, our structure that, we would mainly hear Marie have these little odes, I call them in the play, but little monologues, little kind of moments for her just to secretly talk to the radium she knows is not healthy for her, but she keeps it anyway, and secretly talking to herself, like, should I die or not? Should I just end this or not? And those moments are usually Marie's, and then having the play kind of break that pattern of naturalism with bursts of kind of intimate monologue and then go into this dual monologue where they travel through time. They say after that summer, the summer, um, we you know finished the summer and we went home and I went here and I went here and then the war started and I was in Paris and I was in the UK. Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Okay. And it just back and forth. So kind of, but doesn't that feel like the calendar days flipping or the a picture book of pictures from your life just doing like this flip, flip, flip and time goes too fast and your kids grow up too quickly and you realize, my God, has it been three years since we were at that dinner together? And that to me felt like life, especially busy people. Um, and so it felt like a way to approximate the slippage of time. Um, and then, you know, confronting one's own mortality, which is what this play ends up being about is we kind of realize Marie is actually on her deathbed and that kind of slightly ethereal purgatorial space where she's going, what was my life about? What was the most powerful moments of my life? And it was this moment with her friend Herta who saved her life and taught her who she was and how resilient she was and what was worth living for and all that good stuff. So that's part of why I thought, you know, <laughs> in some ways it's a bit of a dream play, but it doesn't feel like a dream play until you want it to feel until, well, at least you and I want the audience to feel that. Yeah. Um, I really loved getting to direct those moments too of the, of the drop into the internal monologue and then back out again. It does feel mm -hmm. like the play irises in and out in the really mm -hmm. beautiful way to let us in on the interior of each of these women, which, which I'm realizing now, as I say that prepared us for the fact that at the end is really this meditation on mortality mm -hmm. that 
you you spend time, you hear about one woman dying and what happens to a friendship when one person goes, and then um, you're with Marie in her final moments in a way that is very unexpected. And I found every time I saw it, I found very moving mm -hmm. um, that, I don't know, that we're let into this, um, this great mind as she is, you know, facing her death. And you know, it's that question, yeah, because I want plays that do that. And sometimes you go, that's the whole point of the writer is to go, what plays do I want to see right. that I right. haven't seen in the world? What, what play do I want to give birth to? Because it hasn't been in this way before, right. that I need a play that is funny and fast and gets really serious and has a lot of gravity and then a lot of levity and they're like drunk girlfriends hanging out together and then is about mortality, but also about the things we leave behind when we die, the things, what, is, what a legacy is, and like all that should be in a play. And it should be a play that you have to catch up to, you know, that isn't like, welcome, we're gonna make this easy for you. Like, no, I wanna, I want that audience to go, what is next? What is this? How do I understand this moment? And what's, what's next? And, and I felt like this was a chance to kind of do, do, do that. Um, uh, in a in a way, because I, I don't know, like I needed a friend like Marie and Hertha. I, I needed their friendship in the world so that I can go like, yes, that is, that's what I want to explore and unpack. And, and I think that was part of what our production was, is going, every, everyone needs a little Hertha Ayrton <laughs> in their life to help them out. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, that yeah. reminds me of just hearing you talk about the structure and that you're writing what you needed. I do think the play takes, even though it is about this one moment, it does take a lot of twists. Um, I love that you're able to write about historic figures and not, um, not be intimidated by putting words in their mouth. You know, mm -hmm. that like you take 19, the, it was set 1910, you take 1910 and you pull it right up to 2019 for us um, in a way that, doesn't feel disrespectful or um, as if you're not telling the truth of the story, but instead just brings us closer together. And I remember um, some very collaborative moments of me and you and Frankie and Kate um, when we were tackling uh, one of the um, scenes where they are having an argument um, and sort of about how the peaks and valleys of that. And yeah. And you were, I can't, maybe you were in London or Chicago. I can't remember where, but I remember we FaceTimed you in whatever hotel room, wherever you were in the world. Yeah. And, um, and we, the three of us like lined up, we all sat on the, on the, yeah. and spoke to you on FaceTime. And we would say, okay, so, so this is what's happening when we rehearse it. And here's this moment. And we're not able to crack this moment. And what was your intention here? And it was, it was, um, I don't know, I, I think maybe because I'm talking to you over Zoom right now and <laughs> thinking about technology and collaboration, um, it was a, a great way to actually bring you into this space. Yeah. It wasn't it. perfect, but it worked for what we needed it to be. And It did, you know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I'm a writer that I, I, certainly for a new play, I want to be there for that first week and that last week. Um, and opening is great if you can be there, but that's mostly the party and the work is kind of, at least for the writer, is, is hopefully done. Is done. Um, but, you know, so I want to leave room for GT to work with the cast and then to not have the space where sometimes if the writer's in the room, it becomes so much about the words and the rewrites that to just leave it as like, let's say the play is perfect and y'all just work on it for a little while. 
Um, but you always need those moments. There are those moments of going, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think this is, yeah, I think we this is stuck. now we were stuck. Yeah. a writing moment. Yeah. And, and there was something that I think it ended up being, there was a transition that was too short or the, the ramp to get to a very big emotional moment was too short, not quite, um, built right so that, uh, so that Marie could get to this point of combustion and, right. and it, it, you know, it, it was like too wordy or too poetic or too theatrical. And it kind of just needed awesome. to be grounded and real. And like, how does she just break down and freak right. out? And, and how do we, and what does Hertha do to, to do, does Hertha calm her? Does Hertha say like, go for it. I'm here. Freak out. And I'm, that's why I'm your friend. Cause you can freak out in front of me. And, um, and so making that, it's a very delicate thing because if it, if it feels off, then the kind of, if the, there's a little hole in the ramp, then we kind of can't get to the top. Right. Yeah, but that was really, really great. And such an interesting moment too, we discovered where there was a moment where when Marie leaves out of anger and rage, um, Hertha is left alone. And that scene, I thought, well, is it a monologue for Hertha? You know, where she just talks about, she talks about how mad she is at Marie, or does she talk about that she, anything but that? Like, we know she's mad at Marie, but she talks about something else. Or does she quote this poem? Herta is a, a bit fan of, of, of poetry in this play, and, and so she is quoting this poem. Does she just read the poem, and it's really angry? Does she read the poem, and it's really sad? Or, and we kind of, like, went all these different ways, and Kate was so game to go, I would do this, I would do that, let me do this, that. And we kind of realized that actually what the play wanted is just for this talkative, brilliant intellectual woman to have nothing to say. And so there is a scene that we, it was basically just Kate on stage, um, feeling the feels and feeling that pain and kind of not knowing what to say. And it's betrayal, but it's anger, but it's, it's loss and, and kind of just watching her be her and this amazing silent moment with this incredible actress um, doing her thing, you know, <laughs> which is, yeah. was a really interesting revelation to me. Yeah, that was awesome when we realized, oh, let's just watch Kate and see what happens when she puts herself back together after this argument with Marie. So when Marie returns, she's in a completely different headspace and we'll just watch her have all those thoughts yeah. that get her to that, the place that she needs to be in when Marie returns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a wild thing we built. <laughs> Yeah. And I think for the audio for the audio play, we just had we had the the Darren West soundscape happening, and we just he just truncated it because obviously when you're not watching Kate Mulgrew, we didn't want to just sit in it forever. But but um, we you know tried to calibrate it so that you understood there was a passage of time in the audio play, yeah. but it, you don't sit there for as long as you did got to in the real theater where you could you could watch Kate. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, certainly now when we're in this world of streamed stuff and a thirst for some version of theater and to have an audio play that we could share that we're also proud of was, was really um, exciting. Yeah. And it's interesting because I was listening to it again and several other audio plays from my colleagues as well. And it's an interesting kind of, because it, it is a kind of theater. Mm -hmm. um, but what's kind of magical about it to me is how close you are to them. Right. I mean, this is not even front row. Like you were in it with them. You were on stage with them. You were next to Frankie and Kate as Marie and Herta as they are. And it's, some, 
it's almost like you are them a little bit. It feels more like acting than <laughs> audiencing in a weird way, right? Because we're, we're just, we're, they're in your ears, they're in your head. So it's such an interesting and I think kind of riveting way to experience a story. Um, you know, different than sitting in a, a, a theater, which I miss so much, but <laughs> we do what we can now. Um, but I will say, I think I learned, I, I learned a deeper love of this format and this, this medium of, um, of audio plays through this, through the experience of making one with you, but also in this time where I'm in this theater so much and I get to experience yeah. it in a different way. So interesting you said, I remember now the first time we were sitting in the booth and putting on the headphones to hear them recording and having that experience of like, oh my God, they're just right here. It's very, it is so intimate. It feels, yeah, it feels very voyeuristic, except you're not watching it. It does. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a secret, a secret, like you shouldn't, I shouldn't be listening to this. It's so yeah. 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 It's cool. <laughs> I love that. Um, so how are you, how are you collaborating now? How are you, are you making <laughs> things now? Are you paused? Are you dreaming dreams? Or what, what is your kind of creative yeah. brain doing at the moment? What week are we on? Eight weeks into the pandemic? Nine weeks? Who knows? <laughs> um, I'll be honest, it's taken me a while to figure out any sort of brain space to begin to think about this again. Um, I have two young children, I have twins who are two years old. And so most of my collaborations have looked like this <laughs> um, and baking muffins, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, interestingly, I was having a hard time reading plays at the beginning of this, I think because I wanted to instinctively start to work on them and then wasn't feeling ready to do that. So I started reading novels, um, mm. some of them that are sort of tangential to plays that I am working on um, that will hopefully go back into production. And so that's been, that's felt like um, a tiny piece of luxury in terms of finding a silver lining in the middle of um, this terrible, sad, <laughs> awful time that we're in. Um, to be able to find even 20 minutes of concentration to read a novel and 20 minutes here and 20 minutes there. And so I think I would say that in terms of theater collaboration, I've been mostly on a pause, but I've been um, refilling the well, as it were, of just taking some time to um, bring in other forms of art. Um, I've been watching some films, I've been, looking at um, museum exhibits online, uh, a little bit of dance. Um, New York City Ballet has their um, season online. And that's felt really, like I said, it's felt a little bit luxurious to say, oh, I could actually take some time to look at other art forms right now. Um, because I, I used to do that much more um, in the beginning of theater. And then, you know, you get, you get busy and you're doing this reading or that reading and, or, family life or whatever it is, takes over. And, um, and because I haven't had the headspace to dive into plays, to do actual real work on them right now, um, that's been my sort of sidestep. And I'm just now starting to, I actually um, read a new play that I had never read before two days ago. And that was the first time I've been able to do that. So it's taken me eight weeks, um, which I feel is crazy. But I also feel like no, I think the, this time has been a little bit brain shattering <laughs> and I'm just trying to, um, you know, pick up the pieces of that and, and, um, 
trying to learn how to deal with my anxiety about worry that I have for friends or family um, and all the other things that are going on in the pandemic and trying to find ways to set that aside a little bit, especially because I'm learning that this is not going to end. This is instead going to be a new way of thinking and, and working over the next year or so, at least, I think. Um, and so, yeah, trying to be gentle with my artistic self and thinking of other ways to start collaborating, whether it's even just having conversations um, with different artists. I mean, like this has actually been very satisfying and exciting to reflect on collaboration and also think about, okay, moving forward, what can we do? I mean, having this kind of conversation with a colleague um, to talk about work is a great way to carve out some time and some brain space to get my, um, that part of my identity back, <laughs> that part of my brain back into action. Um, I was recently on a Zoom call with about 40 women directors, all of us sort of talking about how we're moving forward. And there was a, just a whole range, you know, some people are exploring Zoom directing, some people are, have other platforms that they're enjoying that are not Zoom, but that are still video related. Um, and then others of us that are using this time to read um, and or to have, you know, to set up some conversations in the future. Um, yeah, so that's where I am. I'm very slowly stepping back into the world of work. What about you? Um, yeah, the first week or so was kind of vacant as far as new ideas. It was just figuring out how, how does this work? I mean, I'm in San Francisco. We were the first city to go, to go into shelter in place. So there was no real model besides, you know, Italy and, and, and China. Um, and so uh, it was, it was an adjustment period, but then quickly feeling like there is stuff that you can do now and creating community and having conversations and lifting theater up into consciousness and talking about what makes it so um, urgent and, and, and part of not just entertaining people and having something to watch on Netflix and saying like, well, if you like Netflix, you should support theater too. It's, it's about, no, there's a primal thing in storytelling. We need it. We have always needed it. We will never not need it. What is it now? and being really kind of wild about making things. Um, and some of them are small and some of them are deeply silly and some will never become a thing that I could share or point at and say, we need this, but the process, some bit of process was in process to, to talk about it. Um, and, and you know, <laughs> like several of my colleagues were like, well, writers are used to being home and trying to get stuff done. So it, in some ways, that part of it doesn't feel um, strange to me. Uh, and I like writing, and it is a place that I find meaning and focus. And so I go there anyway. Um, but the question is writing now, and what is now? And, and all the things, much to your point, that are also in the air, and incompetent administrations, and death, and fear, and racism, um, and the exposure of all of these long-standing terrible issues in our country and 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 you know like I have two kids too <laughs> you know helping them um, and making a lot of Legos and a lot of banana bread and all that stuff um, so it is it is an exposure to me of, of how I how I defend time to work um, and how I prioritize that work 
um, if I can. So I'm, I'm learning that lesson. I'm not good at it at the moment, but there's a lot of new projects, a lot of new plays, a lot of people kind of saying, well, we know we're going to need plays written. So go to the writers and keep writing. Please, you writers, write. <laughs> and we'll figure it out the rest as we go. So some of our conversations are artistic directors saying, hey, can you write a thing that we could do in the space and pivot to a digital medium if we need to? And I'm going, sure, I'll, let's figure what that, I don't know what that means. This may be terrible, but we're going to try it. And um, enjoying a lot of streamed theater. I know we're kind of in a, in a business-wide um, debate about what that is and what it should be, but I'm a big fan. I think they are different things. And so I, I cannot wait to be back in the theater space, but I am excited about this new form and its accessibility and all that. And so, yeah, lots of creating, lots of- Democratizing in a way, you know, and in, in, in a way to engage new audiences that we haven't been able to engage before. I and feel honestly like the, the Audible plays. I mean, I, I've always said when Kate first commissioned me that um, it felt like something that little Lauren, who grew up in Georgia, would have been so desperately happy to have. And right. I think the same thing of streamed theater. If I could have watched the national productions as a kid yeah. um, on a regular basis, when I had the time after this soccer practice or this or that or whatever, um, I think it is democratizing and it's equalizing. And I think it'll be good for theater in the long run, as long as we think of it as different than the live performance. But right. anyway, there's good stuff to come and we're all, you know, nobody's giving up on theater. Um, and if you are, yeah, that's, yeah, I've never been worried about theater going away. No. I feel like it is a primal mm -hmm. need um, and whatever form it ends up taking, but it is something that's been around for 2,500 years through many <laughs> pestilences and plagues. And I think we're going to be okay. Yeah. But it is, it yeah. is, I think theater's job and all of our, in this collaborative space to kind of reach out and let people come to that on their own time and say, wherever you are is where you're supposed to be. If you don't want to be where you are, let me know and we'll talk and we'll, we got you. We got, you've got support. And um, so anyway, but I can't wait for this to be over and we can be in the room together again. Yeah. Make some other More in person, more in person. Yeah. Indeed. Well, thanks it's for this nice conversation. This is so great. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> bye.